Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Chris Biddle, how are you today? Very well, how are you? I'm well. Before we get into the topic of the month, although it's a new month and actually this may dominate this month as well, let me get your thoughts on what did the Prime Minister announce yesterday with... um, it's not our own version of Space Force, is it? No, it is not. Okay. No, we are uh, working with our allies, primarily the United States and uh, NASA, um, to go to the moon. And uh, Canada has announced, uh, I believe it's $2.4 billion over the next 14 years. Um, and the Canadian will step on the moon, which is an exciting thing to think about. And um, there are thousands, even though it'll be one Canadian that'll step on step on the moon, There'll be thousands of people behind them. The uh, aeronautics industry is a huge industry in Canada, and there'll be a lot of work uh, behind that, a lot of work at the Canadian Space Agency. Um, and so it'll be exciting to move forward and, and, and to watch this. And I know a lot of Canadians will uh, be able to watch this with excitement and how excited they were to follow uh, Chris Hadfield. Uh, excited to watch Chris Hadfield um, and the uh, space station. Uh, they'll be even more excited to watch uh, on the moon. All right, let me begin with uh, a text I received in the earlier um, hour, and we'll and we'll do that as a jumping off point because obviously this was a monumental week in Ottawa, all eyes riveted. It's amazing when CPAC becomes must see TV. Although the major networks carried the Standing Committee on Justice and Human Rights testimony from Jody Wilson-Raybould on Wednesday, I assume when the former Principal Secretary Jerry Butts. Uh, appears next Wednesday. It also will be must-see TV. But Mary wrote and said, regardless of who said what, it it is shocking that Canada is being controlled by a corrupt company, that there is many people out there with the perception that SNC-Lavalin, regardless if they get a deferred prosecution agreement or actually face the corruption charges, is a company facing charges in Montreal, formerly Libya, I believe Bangladesh as well, that this is a corrupt company that is trying to call the shots here in Canada in terms of what's good for them. How do you respond to people with that um, thought? Well, I, we can look at it, and we can call it we can call it whatever we want. But there's nine thousand families in this country, a lot of them in Ontario, that rely on this company. The individuals who in the company who have committed crimes should face justice. Um, you can't throw a corporation in jail. Um, but there's nine thousand families currently um, employed. There's pensioners. There's contractors. There's a lot more than just even those 9,000 families that rely on it. And we have to look at the broader public interest. And we have to look at its impact on the Canadian economy and what that's going to do. It's not a thing that anyone should take lightly to say um, thousands of jobs are going to disappear across the country. Um, And that's um, something that we should just sneeze at. That is going to be a huge impact on our economy, and it's incumbent on us as members of Parliament to ask the questions that need to be asked. If there's job, a job issue uh, in Niagara, I am going to go to the wall. I am going to speak to every minister possible. I am going to knock on every conceivable door uh, to make sure that we save jobs, because that's why people elected us. They want to ensure a future for themselves, a future for their children, and that's what our role is as members of Parliament. Are you suggesting that 
SNC-Lavalin is perhaps too big to fail? I, I don't know that, and that's uh, something that... Uh, it's going to be determined by our, our justice system, and ultimately there's going to be decisions that will have to, have to be made. Um, but again, 9,000 families is, is a lot, and it's going to be a significant impact on the Canadian economy. 9,000 um, families, however, 9,000 jobs. SNC-Lavalin, this did not come up last week. 9,000 families were not conscripted to work for this company. 9,000 people were not enslaved by this company. 9,000 people have chosen to work with a company that has a long and checkered past. Do we really have to take in consideration that employees who willingly went here are now going to be victimized by prosecution of this company? Well, you say people go willingly. People just can't change jobs automatically. I, I it's not been like, nine uh, years. It's been nine years, but changing a job, a job that you've invested decades or years into a pension, you're just going to change overnight. That's, that's a really easy way to look at things. People may not like how Bell Canada operates, and um, yep. we can't look, we can't look to, to the employees of the radio station that you, you stand behind this company. This is you go to work, you do your job, um, and you get but don't you accept that? Like, I accept Bell Canada in terms of, yeah, I work for a giant corporation. I've accepted that. I've made peace with that. So I don't know if the government should come along and help people with SNC-Lavalin. They've made a choice. They've chosen to work for this company, warts and all. Have they not? I, I don't put that, that cynical view on things. These are, again, it's not just so easy to pick up your family, move your jobs, move your life, and find something uh, with the same level of pay to support yourself. These are 9,000 families that aren't being charged. These are 9,000 individuals that are working hard, working for a company, doing their job, and doing it well. Um, and the government should be looking out for them. This is, this is our role. Um, because if they lose their jobs, the government, the Canadian taxpayers, will be footing the bill and to support these individuals. And so this is something we need to look at. And it's, it's not so easy to say you work for a corporation that uh, has some charges against it. I think if we look across the board, and even though I don't have it in front of me, I'm, I'm quite <laughs> probably certain that Bell Canada has had some charges against it in the past, perhaps not criminal, but probably many regulatory offences through the years. And the employees shouldn't be, um, the employees of that company aren't then tied to those particular charges and what they do. And corporations across the country face those, uh, face those issues time and again. And you can't just decide to quit your job, move your family, and just throw things up in the air. People deserve certainty. They put their time, they put their effort into a particular corporation. They've worked to get a pension, and they deserve, um, they deserve respect, and they deserve to be taken seriously. People don't have jobs for life. I think everyone can agree on that. And do you think that people out in Alberta would share that same sentiment, that the government is working hard for their jobs as well, that market forces and not internal decisions have affected workers in the oil patch, for instance, and tens well, of thousands of workers have lost their jobs out there and I think people in Alberta and Saskatchewan would feel that the government has not done a lot to help them. How do we also pick up the bill for SNC-Lavalin in terms of employment insurance is a, is a is a insurance plan employers have paid into? But I mean, if we're going to go all out in protecting companies, especially ones who have made decisions on their own and now face charges in the case of SNC-Lavalin, of corruption. This isn't market forces like in the oil patch going against them. This again, it's difficult for many people to see that this is a company that we should be backing. 
at the end of the day, in terms of Alberta, and you're, we're, we're comparing market forces here, if there's a drop in the construction industry, if there's a downturn in the economy, people with SNC-Lavalin will understand, and they, right. do, uh, they do understand that. With the price of oil at $50 a barrel, that's, that's going to impact the, the oil sands in Alberta. But we've stepped up in Alberta in terms of improving, and British Columbia, Saskatchewan, approving uh, the LNG pipeline, approving Line 3, um, Keystone, um, and purchasing the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which we've talked about a number of times to assist with the uh, workers out there. So it's it's something that we take seriously across the country and is not just one particular uh, one particular industry and one particular province. And again, SNC is not just it's it's not just a company that's based in Quebec. Most of the largest number of employees are in Ontario and have employees across the country. So this is something that needs to be taken seriously, needs to be looked at, and questions need to be asked. And if if you're approaching red flags, it's incumbent on that minister to say, this has gone too far, it needs to stop. And that was never done to the Prime Minister, and it was never done with Cabinet. Don't you think, though, when she said, and now this is her testimony, and again, we only see, we only hear from one side, but she told the Prime Minister, no. She repeatedly told people who approached her, no. She eventually said, I need to put an end to this interference to the clerk of the Privy Council, and said no. The Prime Minister said, well, we need to find a solution. I just don't think they liked the solution she gave them, which was... No, we are not asking the director of public prosecutions, which is arm's length and which she can overrule. It seems to me that they just didn't like the solution that was given to them. And the answer was repeatedly, does it not sound like no in this case? When we look at the, the Shawcross Doctrine, and I know, and I've talked about this now a couple times this month on your show and Tim's show, and, and worry that people uh, uh, tune out a bit when we start talking about the, um, these, these types of principles. Um, but it is incumbent on the Attorney General, and this is in Shawcross's own words, that it's incumbent on the Attorney General to take in all the facts. And this, we're talking about four meetings with the Attorney General over a period of four months. Um, if things are changing on the ground, if there are options that remain to be open, that's something that should be brought forward. It should be something that uh, needs to be discussed when there's so many families, uh, livelihoods at stake, and it's something worth noting. And I, as a lawyer, uh, if there was an issue and there was concern with my client, I would put it in writing and say, you know, this is what we talked about. This is, this is where we're going. This is, this is a decision that needs to be made. When asked, um, as Wilson-Raybould said, there was no such letter. There was so much no documentation. There was no memo. There was no letter. There was no email that said, this is my final decision, and I, I, things will not be changed. During her testimony, um, she said she was open to more, um, more meetings, or she said that her chief of staff informed other people that she was open to more meetings uh, and more discussions on the subject. This isn't black and white. This is an issue that we need to take seriously, we need to look at, and needs to be discussed because people elected us um, in terms of the economy. We had great numbers this week in terms of poverty and poverty reduction since 2015. These are the things Canadians want to know and they want us to deliver on, um, jobs um, and people's livelihoods. And these are the things that we go forward with uh, on and at the end of the day. She says nothing illegal had happened. No one directed her to do anything that she felt was improper. Let me bring up, though, Justice Rosenberg, Mark Rosenberg, references the Shaw Cross Doctrine. And he says the Attorney General must take into account 
all relevant facts, which is what you've pointed out, right? That here are every, here's everything to do with this case, including the effect of a successful or unsuccessful prosecution on public morale and order, which is what's the public good? What, what, is this good for the country or not? The attorney general is not obliged to consult with cabinet, but is entitled to do so. Any assistance from cabinet colleagues is confined to giving advice, not direction, which we see in all the language. The prime minister repeatedly said, we did not direct her, we did not direct her, we did not direct her. So giving advice is fair game. Fourth, responsibility for the decision is that of the attorney general alone. The government is not to put pressure on him or her. And that's where, what is acceptable pressure? Calling, messaging, texting. When the answer is repeatedly no, I guess we come down to, what is considered acceptable pressure? Direction, as everyone can agree, and the Prime Minister went out of his way to say, I did not direct the Attorney General, is clearly crossing the line of the Shawcross Doctrine. But is pressure, this is, I guess, where now we're going to have to make a decision. Was what she was facing pressure or not? And, and I guess this is the crux of the situation, is it not, Chris? Well, and you you quote um, you quote the the quote that you made. There's a the, the next paragraph afterwards is that uh, Shawcross says that in some cases it would be foolish not to consult with your colleagues, and so it's it's incumbent on the attorney general to have all of the facts, and it's cabinet's role to come forward and says this is a significant economic decision, and if lines were crossed, if red flags were raised, it's incumbent on the individuals involved. And she, uh, she in her role as the Attorney General, is the lawyer to Cabinet. The Prime Minister is not a lawyer. Mem many of the members of Cabinet aren't lawyers. And those of us who are lawyers may not know the finer points of the role of the Attorney General. It was not brought up in Cabinet. Cabinet meets every Tuesday. It was not brought up to the Prime Minister that this was not appropriate. And nothing was heard about it until um, she received and accepted another role in Cabinet. That this was a decision that remained open facts facts were changing prosecutions are fluid uh, fluid things and facts need to be brought forward and ultimately there is no memo there is no document there is no conversation which is which was there are to be no more conversations the decision is final the only thing is of course this is why you have conversations in person don't ever put anything in writing everyone knows that don't put it in an email don't put it in a letter everyone knows you have conversations so this is where when you look at and again you know the feeling of the canadian public which i get a small sample of every day seems to look at her testimony with her note taking with um the ability for her to document dates and times and individuals this is what was said and probably as a crown yeah and you you know you obviously know the court history or you obviously know how the courts work so as a crown attorney for british columbia and now as the attorney general a copious note taker and when you and, and the people believe what she said that this is what happens this is what was said and when you get to the principal secretary also not a lawyer the uh chief of staff also not a lawyer talk about yeah well we can't do this without interference that we're going to have to do this both of them mentioned in the same meeting there's going to have to be interference here and while it's not illegal right i hope our standard of uh hasn't fallen so far as well it wasn't illegal right it wasn't illegal cheating on my wife also not illegal it's not appropriate, though. So are we down to what's appropriate, what's illegal? Like, is this our standard now in terms of what can be said and what can be discussed? 
Well, at the end of the day, two people can go into a meeting and one person can um, believe that the conversations were inappropriate and the other person may believe that it it was appropriate. Fair and, enough. And I think we have, we have that distinction here. But ultimately, if someone is a copious note-taker, and I respect that as a lawyer, I... Are I, you I a copious note-taker? Uh, I was much better when I was a lawyer because you have a lot. Of, you have a lot of cases. Things mm -hmm. are always on the go. You have to be able to go back and rely on some detail that happened. But at the end of the day, and when I talked about doing letters as a lawyer, you want to be able to point back to your client to say, "Aha! This is the letter I gave you. Remember when I when I gave you this legal advice? Here it is in a letter. Here it is in a memo that I gave to you. This is what was said. This is when it was said." And in this case, um, it was incumbent on her to bring that matter forward. And ultimately, we heard from her testimony, at all times, the Prime Minister said it was up to her, it was her decision, and that no one wanted to cross the line. But again, it's ultimately up to us as members of Parliament to look at those families and say, we're going to keep asking the question. And I think uh, four meetings with the Attorney General over a period of four to five months I don't think is a lot to ask of uh, a minister's time when 9,000 jobs are on the line. And again, and I'm, I'm sorry to sound like a broken record, but if there was a, a truly final decision, that should have been in writing or communicated to the prime minister or to the cabinet as the cabinet's lawyer. And that wasn't done. Let me go to one final quote. In her testimony, she says, I was t quite taken aback. My response, and I remember this vividly, and this is in a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the prime minister was to ask the Prime Minister a direct question while looking him in the eye. I asked, quote, are you politically interfering with my role, my decision as the AG? I would strongly advise against it, to which the Prime Minister said, no, 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 no. We just need a solution. And my thinking is, the Prime Minister just didn't like her solution. That it's a matter of, no, 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 no. She said no. In her testimony, she repeatedly said no, and they keep looking for a different solution. I guess, to your point, they need to be in writing? Well, ultimately, ultimately, at the end of the day, um, and I'll give it a local example. I was a big proponent of single event sports betting, and I lobbied heavily the, the Minister of Justice and Attorney General um, to support a private member's bill that would allow that because that meant jobs in um, more jobs in Niagara. And I knocked on every door and I keep kept going at it. And I was told, no, it wasn't going to support that. But I kept going, and I still keep going to this day because that's something that's still on the table, and that's my role, to keep moving that forward, to keep asking the question, to ask, is there a second opinion available? And that was one of the issues as well. Can we get you a second opinion from a Supreme Court justice? Let's bring in an outside expert. How can we deal with this within the rules, within the bounds of the law? but still have an eye on these families and do what's right by them by, by still maintaining the rule of law, by still remaining within um, what's legal in Canada, and by assuring the Attorney General that it was her decision to make. And that was what was being done. And that is the role of the Prime Minister. That is my role as a Member of Parliament and his role as a Member of Parliament by the Prime Minister as well. And to look at that across the country and the huge impacts that it could have. Chris Biddle, I appreciate your time today. Always a no pleasure. Problem. Talk to you soon. Take care. 28 minutes after 12 o'clock. Quick break on the program, noon 30, coming up next.